Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Jesus does not love the way that others love. Others fail. Jesus does not fail. Others may look on you fondly, and then later not look on you fondly. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. They may, others, love you more one day, less the next, depending on their mood or your behavior. It is not that way with Jesus. Others may betray your trust. Jesus is your trust. He cannot betray you. We can't endorse everything the beloved Mr. Rogers of TV fame said, but I think we can endorse this. He said, love is at the root of everything. All relationships, all learning, love or the lack of it. And if love is at the root of who you are, everything about you, then to have perfect, unchanging love, the love of Christ, at your root is to have really inner health. To be beloved and accepted in the beloved, to find ourselves somehow within the warm affection of the Trinity, with an affection that cannot alter, to have bold access to the throne of grace and to find upon the monarch sitting on the throne a smile, to have those things is to have inner health. It's to have a healthy root And if you have a healthy root, then it grows up into a healthy tree that bears fruit in its season. And yet, in many ways, we don't find health on our tree. In many ways, there's an uncertainty with us. We who belong to the beloved are not always inwardly healthy. There's uncertainty. We're unsteady or inconstant. And so someone might think from this, well, if the root is Christ's love and it grows up and there's this lack of health, then there must be something wrong with this root of Christ's love. There must be something wrong with Christ's love. And the argument I've been making in this class is that there's nothing wrong with Christ's love for us, but there is something wrong in our apprehension of it or in our understanding of it, in our love for Christ. That's where the problem lies, and that's what we have been trying to stir up by these lessons in this class. The problem is in our love for Him. We are in some ways like children who have the winning lottery ticket, and if we would just cash it in, there are millions awaiting us. But we don't know that, and so we just draw pictures on it. Or we put it aside and play with other toys more interesting to us. We don't realize we can cash it in. And that is what we've been saying in this class, that the love of Christ and Christ himself, an entirely satisfying being, is available for us to know through his word, to experience and to be satisfied in. And the ticket is given to us and we must cash it in. That's faith. We cash it in and we experience the joy of Christ's love and we love him in return. And that makes us satisfied with Christ and no more. That's why we've been considering the love of Christ. There are so many things about Jesus we could talk about and have talked about. 
But we have come to the place where for us to stir up our love for him, which will satisfy us more, we need to see his love for us. So last week, we considered the love of Christ in an area we most doubt it when we fail, when we sin. What happens to his love for us when that happens? And to that person who may doubt Christ's love at that moment, the believer, Paul has said, who will bring any charge against God's elect? Not even our guilt or guilty feelings can do it. But we stopped early in that passage, Romans chapter 8, and I want to return to it now and complete the rest of that passage out to the end of the chapter. So if you want to turn to Romans chapter 8, we stopped at the beginning of verse 35, where Paul had asked the question, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? And everything leading up to verse 35 made very clear that even if we fail or sin, that cannot separate us from the love of Christ. But our own failures and weakness, those are not the only things that lead us to doubt the love Christ bears for us. There is something else in our experience, a culprit, that leads us to doubt Christ's love for us. And that is what Paul deals with in the rest of this passage. So let's begin here in verse 35 and on through the rest of the chapter. Who shall separate you if you are a believer? Who is going to separate you from the love that Christ has for you? Is tribulation going to do it? What about distress? What if you're persecuted? What if there's famine? What if you don't have clothes? What if there's danger? What if a sword comes to take your life? As it's written, for Christ's sake, we're being killed all day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And then the answer, no, in all these things, these things are bad circumstances. It's not good to have famine or nakedness, or sword. That's not good. Distress. In all of them, though, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, bad as that is, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers set against you, demons, nor things present, circumstances in your life right now, nor things to come, things you worry about, coming later, nor powers, whether earthly or heavenly, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, if there was anything excluded, it's contained in that phrase, nothing will be able to separate you in the least from the love God has for you in Christ Jesus our Lord. Satan's quest in this world really is twofold. One, if you are not a recipient of the love of Christ specifically, meaning you have not trusted in Him for salvation, Satan is eager to keep you content in the thought that you have His favor when you don't. Because if you think, yeah, I'm good enough, I'm sure Christ approves of me, then you're not going to seek Christ's favor and find it at the cross. But if that's not you and you have found Christ's favor at the cross, then what do you think the devil's scheme for you will be? 
There's no more use in trying to leave you content in the favor of Christ because now you have that favor. And that devil, that liar, his intention is if you really have the favor of Christ, he wants to convince you that you don't. And the subtleties of his lies that he will use, we don't have time to cover all of them, but we have been hacking away at them and that's been our intention in this class. Many of you have believed the enemy of your soul has turned his tactic on its head and now he wants you to believe contrary to the truth that Jesus does not really love you, that he loves you in a theoretical sense, like of course because the Bible says so, but not in a specific, real, day-to-day, experiential kind of way. Not that kind of love like he's actually in heaven thinking thoughts of love about you specifically. That's what the enemy fights against. And we have seen that he uses your own failures, for he's the accuser of the brethren. So when you sin and when you fail, he shoves those in your face to convince you Christ is upset with you, he doesn't love you, and we addressed that last week. But there is something else that the devil uses, and it's this. He comes, that serpent, and he whispers, Christ doesn't love you the way you think he does. He's upset with you. He's furious with you, and I'll prove it. Why else are things going so badly in your life? Why are you having trouble at work? Why is your boss so cruel to you? Why would Christ allow anyone he loves to endure half of what you endure at work? Why aren't all of your children believers if Christ really loves you? Wouldn't he at least see to that? You care about that? Why doesn't he care about that? Because he doesn't care about you. Or again, why are your house payments now taking up so much of your budget? Why aren't you healthy? Why aren't you prosperous? Why do you have a sickness? Why do you have an illness? It's because Christ is upset with you. He's brought these into your life to punish you because he's upset with you for your sin or for something else. Because otherwise, wouldn't you be that psalmist tree in Psalm 1? Planted firmly, growing up, and everything you do, you prosper. But that's not you. That is the doubt the devil offers you, and it has to be answered. Because if it's not answered, then it starts to choke out that root of Christ's love that produces inner health, a healthy Christian. Does suffering prove that Christ does not like you? Does tragedy mean that God is against you? That is the question that we're answering today. We're done. Okay, just kidding. We'll add a few observations to that. Let's begin... to consider it by noting why that kind of doubt is often so effective. When I put it as plainly as I've put it up here, clearly the answer is no. But in our day-to-day experience, it takes root much more than that. The idea that suffering proves Christ's disfavor is effective because sometimes it does. If you hear the thud of a body against the floor and there's Ananias... You remember? He tried to deceive the omniscient one, to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back some money for himself that he said he was giving to God's people. And he died. Did he die because God was upset with him? Yes. That's why he died, because God was upset with him. The consequence of God's disfavor in that case was his death. Or you think of all the bodies that fell in that desert south of Canaan, and we are supposed to learn from them, that rebellious generation, 
not to put the Lord our God to the test, not to grumble as some of them did, not to be idolatrous. Or again, we're to remember Lot's wife, how she was changed into a pillar of salt as a consequence of God's disfavor. Or we're to learn from Esau not to be fleshly and trade heaven for stew, for lust. God's judgment does fall upon mankind in the form of pain or tragedy sometimes. And in such a case, it is to be taken as a sign that he's upset, that he's angry. But you see, this is where the greatest care has to be taken. That word sometimes. Because some suffering in the world clearly comes from God's disfavor, clearly in Scripture. But it's only some of the suffering. But we tend to take all of the suffering as from God's disfavor. The Bible never says that. Some of the suffering, yes. All of the suffering, no. Some of the suffering in the world, some of the tragedy, comes from not God's anger at all, not His disfavor at all, something entirely different, some other purpose that has really at its root love rather than anger. Some comes from anger, some is angry pain, and some is non-angry pain or suffering. But we tend to mix those all together and to read all suffering as God's disfavor. You would think a man, out of his wits, crazy, if every time he heard someone speak words, his assumption immediately was that person is angry at me. So his wife, with sincere, heartfelt care, says, Husband, I love you so much. And his face grows red and he fumes and he says, Why are you always upset at me? She says, I'm not upset. I told you I love you. I'm being honest with you. Why are you even angry? Why do you keep talking? Says, I'm, I'm telling you I love you. He says, I'll tell you what. You want to know his logic? Here's his logic. Every time I've ever found out someone's angry at me, it's because they told me. They used words. So you see someone's anger and words, they go together. So here you are, my wife, and you're using words. Anger, you're angry at me. It's the same illogic that we have towards suffering. Sometimes words convey anger and sometimes they convey love. Sometimes tragedy and suffering conveys God's disfavor and sometimes it conveys something else. But what the devil wants you to do is to take all the suffering together and say every time God speaks through suffering, he's speaking anger and disfavor to you. He's upset with you. But that's illogical. That's simply not true. But that's why it's effective because sometimes it's true. That is a kind of illogic that we carry when we think about tragedy coming into our life. Your logic goes just a little bit too far. Some words prove displeasure, not all do. Some tragedies prove displeasure, not all do. If you confuse the two, you can never hold very tightly to the love that Christ has for you. Because all of us have to experience pain. All of us have to experience tragedy. And if you think tragedy automatically means God is displeased with you, then you will always think God is displeased with you. The key here is to make a distinction 
between tragedy that means God's disfavor and tragedy that doesn't, and to hold that distinction clearly in your mind. So I want to talk about that distinction, and the way I want to do it is like this. I want to jump into the Old Testament for just a minute to point to one clear teaching on that. But then I want to return to Romans chapter 8, which is our main passage. Now, in the Old Testament, the book that most clearly speaks of this distinction between tragedy that comes from God's displeasure and tragedy that comes from something else is the book of Job. And you may remember in the Old Testament, we have three books that we consider wisdom literature, wisdom books. And those three books are Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. And what's interesting is how those books go together. Proverbs, generally speaking, in the main, says, if you do right, God will bless you. And in a proverbial sort of way, that's true. If you do bad, God brings suffering. And in a proverbial sort of way, that's what you see played out in the world. Someone who gets involved in heavy drug usage, bad things tend to follow. But a child who listens to his or her parents and avoids that situation, good things tend to follow. God is involved in that. That's what Proverbs in the main is saying. And that is true, but it's not the whole story, and you know that. And so Ecclesiastes, the second book of wisdom literature, is offered as a sort of counterbalance. What does Ecclesiastes say? Sometimes people who are doing good things suffer for it. So it's a sort of disillusionment that Proverbs generally true, but there are exceptions in this world. And then, of course, the question we ask is, why? Why do people who are doing right sometimes suffer more than those who are doing wrong? And Job doesn't answer that, but it begins to answer the why question. Job is maybe the oldest book in your Bible, and that is the question it's answering is this distinction between Proverbs, sometimes God's displeasure and tragedy comes from doing wrong, and so it leads to suffering, but sometimes not. Sometimes suffering comes for different reasons, and Job is answering that. Now, just a quick refresher. If you remember, Job was one of, if not the richest man in the world in his day, and he was a righteous man. Those don't always go together, but in the case of Job, they did. He had tons of flocks, tons of herd, lots of children. He was a blessed man, and he lived an exceptionally upright life. And then God brought tragedy into his life. And what's interesting at the beginning of the book of Job, and what maybe has stood out to you, is the way the tragedies come into Job's life because they're piled up one after another. You remember, the first messenger comes to him to tell him a tragedy has befallen his flocks or his herds, and he has lost all of them. They've been stolen, fire from heaven, destroyed them. His servants are dead. Shocking in itself, but it says clearly, while the first messenger was still talking, a second messenger came to bring more tragedy, more bad news. And while the second messenger was still talking, a third messenger came and said, your children were in the same place, the house fell and they all died. 
Now that stands out to us because sometimes in our experience that's the way tragedy comes into our life. It would be one thing if just a tragedy appeared, but sometimes it's a tragedy with a tragedy piled on top of it with another tragedy on top of it. And the question in the book of Job is, why? Now we would assume, and often do, when you have so many bad circumstances piled at the same time, you can see the intelligent hand involved. You say, this is too much bad to just be by chance. There's a mind behind this. And so our assumption is, well, God brought this into our life because he's upset with us. Sometimes that can be true. But was that true in the case of Job? All of his friends, Job's friends, thought it was. Their counsel to him in his suffering was, who that was innocent ever perished? They knew the wisdom of the book of Proverbs. If you do the right thing, God will bless you. You are cursed, so you must have done the wrong thing. And a surprising number of chapters, if you've made it through them, are his friends telling him, you must have sinned. You could not have this much tragedy if you did not sin. And you see how much this parallels your experience with tragedy if you are tempted to see suffering tragedy in your life as God's displeasure against you. It's like Job's friends, chapter after chapter after chapter, thoughts of, you must have done something wrong. Christ must be displeased with you. You are not the object of his special love. Otherwise, why would you be so cursed? And they were wrong. They were wonderfully wrong. The entire book is, in a sense, negated by the end when God says, your friends are wrong. Now, Job was not a perfect man. Certainly, he had sin. So you might object, say, well, God brings suffering into my life to discipline me, but he wouldn't discipline me unless there was some problem in me that needs to be fixed. And that's true, but you see, the emphasis is all wrong. With Job, though he was a sinful man, the suffering was not in his life because of his sin. It was not God's furious displeasure at Job messing up and therefore tragedy on tragedy. There was a different explanation entirely. Now, in the book of Job, we are privileged to know what the explanation was, while in our own cases, we often don't. For in the book of Job, you remember, there was a meeting of these angelic beings before God, and Satan was among them. And it was God who said to Satan at that meeting, have you considered my servant Job? And why would God say that? Because he's angry at Job, and Job needs tragedy because he's furious that Job has messed up. Here's why God pointed out Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. The reason for Job's tragedy was not God's disfavor at his sin, but actually his favor at Job's righteousness. That's why Job suffered. If Job had not been such a righteous man, he would not have experienced so much tragedy. But you see how that's opposite to what we assume when we experience suffering. Because we think we have the whole picture. That it must be, like Job's friends, it must be our sin. Sometimes it can be. And we'll get to that. But not necessarily. 
And what's amazing is the second angelic council, after Job has already suffered, and God points out Job again, he says a very shocking thing, and maybe you remember it. He says to Satan, Look, Job still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. That's surprising because we know that ultimately there was a reason. This was a contest and what was at stake was, is God really satisfying in himself? Because Satan said, Job doesn't like you for yourself, he likes you for your blessings. Take away your blessings and he'll despise you. And God accepted the challenge. So was there a reason for Job's suffering? Yes, but you see, God is speaking from our perspective. From a human perspective, there's no reason for Job's sufferings. That's why all the friends are wrong. They say, there's a reason, there's a reason. And God is saying, no, none of those reasons. Not because of his sin. Not because I'm particularly upset with him. Not because he's done something especially wrong. Without reason. In fact, it was really, if we're going to say there's a reason, it's because Job was righteous. Have you considered my servant Job a blameless and upright man? Brothers and sisters, this is vitally important for the health of our own souls, that when suffering comes into our life, we do not form the practice of assuming it's because Christ does not love us. Or it's because he's furious with us for our own failures, for our own weakness. I'm not denying that you have failures. You have failures. I'm simply questioning your assumption that the tragedy or the suffering in your life is proof against Christ's love for you. It is not. What I say is if tragedy comes into your life rather than assuming that Christ is upset with you, let him explain himself which is what he does in his word. And when you listen to him explaining himself rather than jumping to conclusions, he will lead you to the conclusion that whatever's happening, whatever the tragedy, it is ultimately not coming from his displeasure. It is ultimately coming from his pleasure in you, his love for you. Let me explain that a little more clearly by turning us now to Romans 8. Last week we ended there with the phrase that starts the 35th verse. So let's read just that verse to the end now. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Last week, none of your guilt can do it. This week, will tribulation separate you from the love of Christ? And I'm not talking in some strange theoretical, non-real way. But when we say love of Christ, we mean Christ loving you, okay? Now, who is going to make that separate? You understand that's a metaphor. We're talking about who's going to make Christ love you any less, any less, okay? If tribulation comes into your life, does that mean Christ loves you any less? If distress, that's this inward feeling of, ah, because there's horrible things happening, does that mean Christ loves you any less? If persecution, if someone is mistreating you, saying horrible things about you because of your testimony of Christ, does that mean Christ loves you any less? What about famine? What if 
the situation in your nation, in America, is going poorly? Or what if your own budget, your own wallet, your own bank account is not going well? And there's a problem in regard to food here, in regard to necessities. Does that mean Christ loves you any less? Nakedness, same thing. Christ love you any less. Discomfort there. Danger or sword. If your life is at stake. What if someone breaks into your house, does harm to you or your family? Does Christ love you any less if that happens? Paul's answer is no. And yet, these are the very things that we are tempted to credit to God's disfavor. And that's why Paul is saying this. That's why Paul is pushing this upon you as a question, not just stating it. He's asking you, he's making you answer the question. He's saying, if you actually think about it, if these tragedies come into your life and your assumption is, Christ's upset with me, but if you actually think about it, do those things really separate you from the love of Christ? We think, where is Christ's love when we have distress or we have anguish? We think, Christ, why would you do this? Why would you let your cherished flock perish in this way? And that's why the questions are pushed on you to make you answer them, to say, think about it. Think about it. Christ, beloved of the Father, more than anyone, and he suffered and he died. Job, a righteous man who walked uprightly, who offered sacrifices for his children just in case. And he suffered terribly. Think about it, Paul says. Think about it. Will these things really separate Christ's love from you? Do they really mean he loves you less? And the answer is clearly no. C.S. Lewis offers, after his wife had died of cancer... He journaled some of his own feelings as he was working through that and then later went back and somewhat added a commentary to it, I believe. But he talks about the feeling you get of Christ's love being less for you in the midst of suffering. And it's a real temptation to feel this way. And he puts it in these words. Here's from, I think this is when he was going through it. He says, Meanwhile, his wife's died of cancer. Meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing Him, so happy that you're tempted to feel His claims upon you as an interruption, if you remember yourself and turn to Him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, assumption, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seemed so once. And that seeming was as strong as this. What can this mean? Why is he so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent a help in time of trouble? That's not true. And Lewis would recognize that. But that's the feeling. You see, that's the temptation you have when tragedy comes, that Christ's love is less, that he's gone, that he's not even there in the house. God knows we in our weakness tend in this direction, so he inscribes 
upon something much more certain than our feelings, upon his eternal word, these words. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, you may doubt, even in reading Romans 8, oh, and you flip away, that's too hard to receive. But if you turn to Peter's letters, you find the same testimony. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trouble, trial when it comes upon you to test you. There's the reason. As though something strange were happening, but rejoice. That's too hard to receive. You flip away, you turn over to James' letter. Okay, away from all of that. And James says the same thing. Count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, whatever you're going through. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. We can't hear the, our assumptions over the din of God's word, which over and over speaks the same thing. Every letter, it's saying the same thing. Don't assume Christ loves you less because of tragedy. These are in your life, whatever the trial, to test you. To test you, says Paul. To test you, says Peter. To test you, says James. To test you. And you can say, like we said earlier, well, I wouldn't need to be tested if I didn't have sin. So really it's because I've got sin, so it's the testing. So really it's Christ displeased at me. No, 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 no. That's the wrong emphasis. There's some truth to that, okay? But that's the wrong emphasis. The test is coming from a heart of love. Because you may say, yes, because I'm sinful, I need these tragedies, I need these tests because I'm so sinful and Christ is upset and He wants to make me better. But Scripture says the Lord only disciplines the one He loves. If you're disciplined, it's only because He loves you and chastises every son whom He receives. There is, as we said last week, and I concede, a sort of displeasure in Christ toward us when we sin. There is such a thing as a grieving of the Holy Spirit. There is even in God a kind of righteous anger toward our rebellion as believers. But if there was only anger, if there was only frustration and displeasure, then maybe you wouldn't face the tragedies you face. Maybe God would just back off and say, okay, live your life and then eternal punishment, right? That's what he does to those he's really displeased with. But if he's pleased with you, you know what he does? Then he brings tragedy. Then he allows suffering. But you see, you can't see that as coming just from displeasure. The displeasure, if there is any, comes only from love. It's because He loves you. That's the reason these things come. So there's some truth in that. But the emphasis has to be if, if, and it's a big if, the tragedy in your life has anything to do with your sin. And it may not. It might have something to do with an angelic counsel that we don't know about, okay? But if it has anything to do with your sin... Even still, it's only happening because of love. That's what's at the very root of it, is God's love for you. His tender affection and care for you as his child. If he didn't love you, you'd be like those that Asaph envied. For they have no pangs, he says, until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Those are the people Christ hates. See that? He hates them and that's why their lives are so good. 
But those whom Christ loves, you know what their lives are like? They are tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others that Christ loves, they suffer mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. People that Christ loves, they're stoned. They're sawn in two. They're killed with the sword. They go about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world is not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Behold, the beloved of the Lord. Contrary to what we assume, but true in Scripture. These are the ones cherished of Christ. And they're not suffering because Christ, who controls all events, is using them to destroy them. But because Christ loves them and wants to test and refine their faith that he might present his bride to himself holy and without blemish and without mar. That's love. That's not hate. That's not ultimately disfavor. That's love. That's favor. So if you are a believer, here is the takeaway. You have to learn to change your assumption about suffering. You assume Christ's disfavor when suffering comes. We can't have any of that. That's not scripture. You have to learn to assume that Christ loves you and that's why this is happening. Say, well, I can't imagine why if Christ loves me this would happen. That's fine. You don't have to imagine it. Read the end of Job. (laughs) You don't have to imagine it. You just have to believe it. That this is coming from Christ's favor, his love for you. That's why you are suffering The thought that he doesn't love you and that's why tragedy comes in your life, you see, that's only an assumption. There's no basis in Scripture for that. That's your feeling. Like Lewis, that's what it feels like. It feels like the door is locked, but it's just a feeling. That's not true. In Scripture, when you turn to Scripture, you read, who will separate us from the love of Christ? And the answer is, nobody will. You're more than a conqueror through him who loved you. That's what Scripture says. And it doesn't change. You read it next week, it will say exactly the same thing. No matter what your feelings may feel, you have to learn to assume that that's true even if you don't know why. When distress comes this week, let's say Wednesday, distress comes for you Wednesday, maybe it does, and you are in the middle of experiencing that, and it may be a consequence of persecution. It could just be because you're a son or a daughter of God, and therefore this is discipline It could be because of an angelic counsel. We don't know why, okay? But it's in your life. Maybe the death of a loved one. That hurts. There's a distress that comes with the death of a loved one. And when that happens, you ask, is this going to lessen in any degree the love that Christ has for me? Has this happened because... To any degree, Christ loves me less. And you need to assume on the basis of God's word. No. No. But it feels that way. But no. It's okay. It can feel that way. But it's not true. This is not because Christ loves you less. In fact, if Christ loved you less, maybe this wouldn't have happened. Maybe God would have been more careful to shelter you from suffering if you were not really his. Because he would have no concern in growing you and developing your faith and your trust in him. But if you're his, you need this. And it's from love. That the Savior would, with a tear of sympathy in his eye, be willing to heap upon you tragedy after tragedy is a sign of his love. 
For when the father crushed his son, that was done in love. Not because he hated his son. That was done in love. And when the son crushes you, that's a sign of love. That's a sign that he cares, that he's doing something bigger than you might see right now. You don't have to love the pain. You shouldn't. But you have to love the hand that administers the nasty tasting medicine. You don't have to delight in the thorn that pricks you, but you've got to delight in that rose of Christ's love. And if you've got to be pricked by a thorn to get that up to your nose and enjoy it, then be pricked by the thorn. We will know that in the throbbing thumb afterward, there is the throb of Christ's heartbeat toward us. For nothing, not even suffering, tragedy, whatever you're experiencing, can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And when we assume that by faith and take hold of that, our hearts are stirred to love Him in such a way that we are satisfied with Him and nothing else. Let me pray and then we'll take some questions. Lord, I thank you for your word, and I thank you how often it contradicts our feelings, and I pray that you would give us the strength by your spirit to lay hold your word and to claim its promises, and to hold them in defiance of everything the devil would accuse us with, of everything our feelings would persuade us with, of everything we see with our physical eyes and hear with our ears that we would hold this word in defiance of all else, for it must triumph, that we would believe it. And when we doubt, that we would cry, I believe, help my unbelief, that we would hold fast to this, your favor, for it is at the very heart of your gospel. It is what makes the gospel good news. Please free us from the doubts that would turn us away from looking to Christ alone, that would cause us to seek our comfort, our solace, somewhere else because Christ is displeased with us. Help us not to believe in that sort of a displeasure, that nothing can separate us from his love and that we would, when suffering, when tried, do what you intend to do in us, turn our eyes more fully to you and not away. I pray this for your glory. Amen. We have about five minutes, so just a few observations. Yeah. That's good. Marilyn's point, very good point, very practical point. When you have someone that you know who is suffering, she says it's important that you only bring them encouragement because you don't know what's going on. It's easy even as a friend to assume for someone else, yeah, this has happened because of this sin or this sin. Maybe, but maybe not. So it's important not to make that assumption. Very good. Hmm, and that honors God. Yeah, I think so. What else? Jimmy. Uh, how would you counsel so people who are outside of Christ, mm. uh, family members that are suffering, mm -hmm. and kind of question, like, why is this happening? Yeah. Like, how, would, how would you respond? That's good. So Jimmy's question is, if you have friends or family members who are outside of Christ, so this is an unbeliever, and they're suffering, and they're asking that question, why? then how would you respond to someone like that? And I think it's actually similar to what Marilyn, Marilyn was saying here. Don't make the assumption you know the specific reason. Say, well, it's because of this specific. 
it's really good to go back. This is a great opportunity for the gospel because you go back to Genesis and you explain Genesis 3 that really, in a general sense, just like when you're suffering as a believer, in a general sense, it's because Christ loves you. Now, Christ's love, what has that compelled him to do? What specifically is he trying to get at? What sin is he trying to root out? What is he? You might not know, but you know he loves you generally. And for an unbeliever, in a general sense, Genesis 3, generally, the reason suffering's in the world is because of sin, is because things are not the way that they're supposed to be. And that leads you then into the gospel of, but that's why Christ came to restore things into how they're supposed to be. Does that make sense? Marilyn just she has a friend or relative who had a daughter pass a relative who had a daughter pass away from an overdose of Adderall and and talked about how helpful that had been that same thing of just not coming in yeah, support, not coming in with condemnation. It's because of this that this happened, but coming in with support and encouragement. It's good. And she responds to that. Yeah, Rick. Good question. Rick was talking about before he was a believer, he had experienced a lot of rejection. And could God have been using that to point him toward Christ? Yes. And that gets into this kind of mysterious but really rather amazing fact that if you're elect, if you are God's chosen person and you have not yet exercised faith in Christ, you have no way of knowing that, of course, but you haven't yet exercised faith in Christ, there is at the same time this kind of love for you that God has for you from before the foundation of the world. So he's going to make sure that you trust in him. He's going to, And at the same time, there's an anger for wrath that's not yet satisfied on Christ. So that's kind of those both on Rick Berger back in the day coexisting on you in a kind of an amazing way to where God had a real displeasure that's different than he doesn't have that for you now because you're in Christ. But he had that. But he also had this intention that could not be thwarted that he was going to bring you to himself in love. So kind of had both of those. I think it was um, maybe D.A. Carson has a little book, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God, and it talks about those kinds of things. So good. Uh, we are out of time. So.